So good morning. How y'all been? Good. You look good. Some of you took a shower. Way to go. That's a good thing. Hey, I'm Arthur. I'm one of the pastors here and want to welcome you to Southcrest. And if you're watching online, I want to welcome you as well. And to our LaGrange campus, welcome to you. And also, congratulations. Did you guys know that four years ago, uh, on Friday, we launched our LaGrange campus? That's a big deal. Congratulations to them, right? Great job. Way to go. And so, anyway, I hope you guys had a absolutely great weekend. Did you watch some football? Yeah! Bulldog Nation, thank you. Listen, when you administer a beat down to South Carolina, I love it. All right? So I'm all Bulldog all the time today, uh, although my Tigers did all right last night. So whole another story for another day, though, right? So today, we're going to start things off. It's uh, just getting started and uh, kind of getting to know one another a little bit. And we're going to talk today about define the relationship. Have you ever had a DTR, right? You, you start going out with somebody a little bit and you start going, yeah, I think she kind of likes me. And she's thinking, I don't like him so much. <laughs> you've, you've had that thing happen, right? And you, things are going better than you think they are. And then you have a DTR and you go, oh. Or sometimes you have a DTR and you go, yes. And so today, that's what we're going to do. I want to define the relationship a little bit. It's what we're going to talk about. And so, uh, you know, we hate, some, a lot of us hate having that conversation, that define the relationship kind of conversation, because when we do, we're afraid, of, hey, what's going to happen? It's going to, it might be awkward, but it might be really good. But I think it's a good place for us to start. You know, last Saturday, I was at the Clemson game, and it was like 4,000 degrees, uh, you know, I don't know why we've decided we have to play football when it's like 98 degrees, but no kidding. I'm sitting there and we, our seats were, I mean, we, our seats are in the shade, but by like this much, I mean, no exaggeration. And so then the sun started shifting. And I was like, we are going to die right here. Uh, and you know, and so, I mean, it's just, you know, sitting there and so hot and you're like, man, I, but I got to watch this football this game. It's so hot and sweat's running down my face and all that. I'm wearing shorts and there's this guy sitting beside me. Now, man, you understand what I'm about to tell you, right? Because the guy's got the hairy man legs, right? I got the hairy man legs. Now, when I'm hot, the last thing I want happening to me is some guy with hairy man legs rubbing up against my hairy man leg. <laughs> Right? And it doesn't seem to bother him. Now, I'm really kind of upset about the fact that that's not bothering him on like, I don't know, maybe eight, nine different levels maybe. And, and so, but, he, but he's sitting there and, and, and he, he keeps kind of bumping up against my leg. And I'm like, dude, you should stop that. And, but I don't say anything because I'm from the South and I'm supposed to be well-mannered and I'm not going to you know, say something to him about his hairy man legs. So, so I kept moving over a little bit and, you know, you go to college football, you know, you get 18 inches. There's only so far to move. And, you know, and my wife is sitting right beside me and she's, you know, super hot in a whole different kind of way. But, <laughs> you know, but again, I'm like, she's like, it's too hot. You need to move over. I'm like, baby, the man, the man got right here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see what he's, so I, and you know, and you know, about halfway through the third quarter, I said, I started thinking, I said, he and I need to have a DTR. We need to define this relationship, and he needs to understand that him rubbing up against my leg is, is not a good idea. Uh, not, it's too hot. And, and so, but that happens sometimes. You're, you're sitting in chemistry, right? You're sitting in chemistry. It's like second block, right? You're sitting, and, and there's this girl, and she's looking at you. 
And you're thinking, man, my mojo's working a little bit. I, I, I'm looking over there at her. She's kind of looking at me. And you're thinking, I'm thinking, I think I could get something going on with her. And, and you probably need to have a DTR with her because you're starting to think all these good things are going to happen because she's looking at you. And because the thing is, you just got something on the end of your nose. And she's just wishing you'd just do that one time because it's bothering her. And it, she, she's not into you at all. She just wants you to just do something about that, right? And so, uh, you know, a, a DTR big deal. And so uh, that's what we want to talk about today and and figure out, hey, listen, we want to define the relationship, but we want to define the relationship today. We're going to define the relationship with God just a little bit. So if you got a Bible with you, uh, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter nine. And so uh, let's jump in right there. Uh, Matthew chapter nine, verse one, it says, "And, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And it says, and behold, now I love that word. And anytime you see that in the Bible, you all stop and see what's going on. You know, because here's the deal. And man, you should use this sometime. When you get home from work, walk in the door and say, behold. <laughs> now, that's probably what your wife is going to do when you, when you do that. She's just going to say, yeah, uh, what's up with that? But, but anyway, it'll work for you. But get used to it. You should try it sometime. So it, it, it really says, hey, look, 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 something important is going on here. That's what the word means. And that's one of the words we don't use anymore, but give it a test drive. It says, behold, some people brought to, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's huge. That's huge. And he says, and then he goes, and behold, and because so this happens, and then people go, whoa, what did he just do? Look at this. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, look at this part, knowing their thoughts. We never think about that, do we? We never think about the fact that what we're thinking that Jesus knows. We're like, hey, he doesn't know he's not that sharp. Actually, he is. And, and, but he says, he says, knowing their thoughts. And, and look at this. He says, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, how many times do you see God do something in the life of somebody else and you begin questioning their motives? Like, what are are they doing? Another message for another day. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And, and verse 7, this is a great verse right here, this next verse. It says, and he rose and went home. Now, what's the big deal about that? His sins had been forgiven. And you know what else had happened? He'd been healed. Now, see, well, he could, he'd been healed, and he could just say, well, you know, I'm just going to lay here. I'm not going to do anything. But Jesus said, look, I, there's something that I want you to do. He said, I want you to get up and go home. Show people what's happened. And today, I think there's a lot of people in this room that you've been, you know that God has healed you of something. Spiritually, maybe physically. He's healed you of something. But you know what else? He's forgiven you of your sin. And the question is, as a church... Are we just going to lay on the mat and go, I tell you what, got what I needed, I'm done. Or are we going to get up off the mat and we're going to show other people what Jesus has done for us? 
What are we going to do? Let's keep going. It says when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Why were they afraid? They'd never seen anything like that before. But what did they do? They glorified God. See, if we'll get up off our mats and we'll go do what God is calling us to do, it's going to draw people toward the Lord. And what's going to happen is that he's going to be glorified. The glorified God has given such authority to men. So let's explore this just a little bit further. Uh, I have a dog. Uh, her name's Delilah. Uh, she's a great dog. Uh, my daughter has a dog named Paisley. She's beautiful. But she's beautiful. We'll just say that. <laughs> you know, but if you ever talk to a vet, a vet will tell you that he can tell a lot about uh, a dog owner by looking at the dog. And so what does the world think about us as, as the church when they look at us? You know, it, it, it turns out that the world can do everything the church can do except dispense grace. There are other philanthropic organizations. There are people who uh, help people who are in destitute situations. You can get counseling. You can get encouragement. You can get all kinds of things uh, from the world. But the, the one thing that the world cannot give that the church can is grace. Uh, you know, it, you ask someone who's not a Christ follower what they think about Christ followers, and they will start telling you that we're against everything, that we're, we're not tolerant, uh, that we're anti-abortion, we're anti-homosexual, we're anti-anti-anti-anti-anti. And they never think about the fact that we're actually for them. And we care so much for them that we want to share what Jesus has done in us with them. They never even consider that. So the world is hungry for grace. Now, uh, you know, two major problems that most emotional, uh, that uh, that Christians struggle with that are emotional problems. Uh, Number one is the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace. The second major emotional problem with Christians is the failure to be able to give it out. This is is our biggest struggle, is to understand it and receive it. Because like, no, 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 God, no, we have to do something for him to get him to love us. No, you don't. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And, and, and then we have the, the failure to be able to give it out because we, we want to put, we're in competition with everybody. And we say, well, if he's got to do something to earn God's love. No, he doesn't. She's got to be a better person so God will love her. No, she doesn't. So because we don't have an understanding of, of grace, it causes us all kinds of shame. There's three major sources of shame uh, in our lives. Number one is culture. Uh, number two is graceless religion, legalism. What can you do to get somebody to like you? What can you do to get God to like you? Uh, and number three, unaccepting parents. Now, see, that for all of us, this comes very naturally and very easily. See, what happened when you were in kindergarten is that somebody slotted you. Your kindergarten teacher did. She didn't know she was doing it, most likely. But she said, you know, you're really good coloring. You're really good standing in line. You're so good at staying in line. You should be the line leader. You're very conversational. And so they start making notes, and those follow you all the way through school. Or uh, you, you work in a corporation, right? And you, you go in and you take an assessment, and they say, this is, what you're, this is what you're really good at. 
So we're going to get you on this track. And it's kind of hard to bust out of that track once they put you in that without changing jobs, isn't it? Or how about the military? I think the military is the perfect example of ungrace because you get a role and you do that role and you just keep going and going and going. And as long as you do it well, you check all the boxes and you stay there long enough, you'll get a promotion. And then you get another promotion and then you get another promotion. So in our culture, we understand if I do this, this, and this, it yields this result. What we don't understand is that God loves us, period. God doesn't love us when we do something. He doesn't love us less when we don't do something. God just loves us. That's grace. You know, a, a couple <clears throat> things to point out about it is that, is that grace is the one thing, I believe, that separates Christianity from all religions. Uh, you know, uh, grace is um, getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Uh, sometimes you, you talk about being unmerited favor. Now, we contrast that with, with mercy because those are the two words we use a lot at church that we say grace and mercy a lot, but sometimes we don't really understand what we're saying. Uh, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. It's uh, unmerited forgiveness. Uh, about two, two and a half weeks ago, I was driving my daughter's car, and uh, I didn't think anything about it. And I was just going right around the corner to go do something. And um, I don't know, one of the lovely representatives of the South Carolina Highway Patrol <laughs> decided he wanted to have a conversation with me. And which is okay. I, I, love, I love the South Carolina Highway Patrol. If any of you are watching this morning, I love you. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing is uh, you know, I had my seatbelt on. I was driving like, you know, half a mile. And, you know, and the guy stopped me and said, are you aware you're not wearing your seatbelt? I'm like, no, I really wasn't because it's my daughter's car. And I, so, and I was, tr- I was hoping for some mercy, but there was none. It wasn't so bad. It was just 25 bucks. So it wasn't so bad. Um, so let's talk about grace. Uh, number one, grace is freely given. You, you can't earn it. It's not something that, that you can go get. It's not something that you deserve. It is given freely. Uh, number two, uh, grace is seeing beauty in the object. Now, we're going to really camp out on this a little bit this morning, but, but grace is seeing beauty in the object. God sees the good in you. See, your, your wife may not always see the good in you, or your kids may not see the good in you. Your husband may not see the good in you. Your teachers may not see the good in you. Your coach may think that, you know, no, no. But, but here's, here's the deal. God sees the good in you. He, he, he sees the beauty in you. The, when others don't see the beauty in you, he sees it in you. And as a result of seeing that beauty in you, he rejoices over us. So if you've got a Bible this morning, you might want to look to the table of contents. There's a little book called Zephaniah, uh, and you can find it. It's in the back of the Old Testament, or you can just follow along on the screens. That would be great. Uh, so I'm in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. I want to show you how... God rejoices over you. Because here's the thing. This is a little tiny book. It's prophetic literature. It's in the back of the Old Testament. Here's what that means. If it's prophetic literature, we always think it's just a little bit weird. So there's always three things that are going on with prophetic literature. Uh, There's always three applications. There's something that's going on for the the present-day people when it was written. There's something going on for their future and our future. And 
there's always some application for us in present day as well. So those three things are always going on in prophetic literature. So uh, this passage of scripture is at the end of Zephaniah. It's a tiny little book. It's three chapters. And here's what's going on. The children of Israel have messed up. And, uh, and God has said, look, this is not good. You're doing things you shouldn't have been doing. And so, look, I want to, I'm going to discipline you. Not because I hate you, but because I love you so much, I want you to be in a place to where you are fully living out the life I created you to live. And so then at the end of the book, he says, look, here's what's coming. Here's the way I love you now. It's the way I'll love you in the future. It's the way I will always love you. So in Zephaniah 3, verse 14, he says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Because look, this is something to celebrate. Yeah, listen, when you're dejected and beaten down, you don't feel like singing. Uh, you're not going to celebrate when uh, you feel like that somebody hates you. He says, rejoice and exult. That word means to celebrate with jubilation. Exult with all your heart. He says, so put everything you got into this because look, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the way I see you. He says, he says the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, that's a lot. You ought to circle that. God has taken away the judgments against you. You are no, you're, you're not guilty. You know, Romans uh, 8, 1 says, uh, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more, listen, the judgments have taken away. All right, He's, he goes on. He says, um, he has cleared away your enemies. And, and, and you think that, you, somebody says, no, I got enemies right now. No, no, God has cleared them away. And there's a day coming when you will have zero enemies. He says, I'm going to take care of you. He says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And he says, you shall never again fear evil. You know that one out of four people in America suffers with anxiety to such an extent that they cannot sleep through the night at least three nights a week. You know why? Because we've got all kinds of weird fears. We're afraid something terrible is going to happen to us. And he says, look, he says, you will no longer fear evil. I'm going to do that for you. He says, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Now, why is he saying that? Because listen, when you're celebrating, you're, yes, yes. Some of you watching football yesterday and somebody uncorked a pass about 15, 20 yards down the field and some wide receiver grabbed it and zigged left and zagged right. And then, uh, and you're like, yes, yes. But the losing team, what are they doing? God, we stink, right? It's awful. So he says, don't let your hands grow down by your side. He says, no, no, this is something to celebrate. This is something to take great rejoicing in. And he goes on, he says, he says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's reminding you again. He says, look, you're not alone. I'm saying this to you twice. The Lord your God is in your midst. He says, a mighty one, or some translations say, the Lord is a mighty warrior who will save you. He says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So let's call time out. Let's come back to that just a minute. Now, how do you know when you are not walking in grace. Because it's one of those words we use a lot at church and, and we think, well, that's, that's how I live and I get it and I, I understand. But let, let's be real honest with each other for just a minute. Let's DTR it a minute. How do you know when you are not walking in grace? Number one, you're happy on the outside and crying on the inside. 
You know, you make everybody feel like you're doing great, but in reality, you feel like it's all you can do to hold your life together. Number two, you go through the motions of ministry with no passion. Yeah, I'm going to go help that person. Yes, I'm going to be kind to someone. Yes, I'm going to show them compassion. But you're doing it because you feel like you have to, not because you get to. Number three, you are fearful that you will be found out to be a fraud. You're fearful that you'll be found out to be a fraud. You're like, if somebody really knew what I'm struggling with, if somebody really knew what I was thinking, if somebody really knew what I did last Thursday. And so you walk around in secrecy. You've got secrets all the time. And secrets are so destructive. We'll talk about that sometime in the future. But, you know, when you bring secrets to the light, they lose their power. Did you know that? Secrets are very powerful, but when you bring them to the light and get them out of the dark, they lose their power over you. Number four, you have a sense of isolation even when you are being embraced by a group of loving people. You've got all these people around you that love you, and you're like, I am so alone. I have no friends. Nobody cares about me. Number five, you convince yourself that the answer is to work harder. You convince yourself that the answer is to work harder. If I could just do this, God would love me more. If I could read my Bible more, if I could pray more, if I could serve more church, if I could give more, if I could memorize more scripture, if I could go on another mission trip, go on the blank. You think if I do all these things, God you're going to have to love me more, right? But listen, listen, that is a contract relationship with God. You were talking about, look, God, I will do this and you do this. It's a contract. So God, I, I do this and now you're obligated to do this for me. We don't work and live in a contract relationship with God. We live in a covenant relationship with God. I mean, he says, I love you, period. Not I love you when or I love you if, but I love you, period. That's what he's telling us. That's why he lives with us. He's in a covenant relationship with us. We, we don't have to work up stuff to get God to love us. He just loves us. And see here, the thing is, most of us, we just can't come to terms with that. But we really struggle with it a lot. Uh, now, how do you know when you're walking in grace? Number one, your whole relationship with God begins and ends with grace. You get it. He loves you. And there's nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore. Uh, Number two, you realize that you do not have to be omnipotent to please God. You don't have to be all powerful and do every single thing in the world to to please God. Because you know what? He loves you anyway. He created you while you were in your mother's womb. He put you together. He's always loved you. He says, you know that, number three, you know that his love for you is unending, unconditional, and undeserved. You know, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither uh, death nor life nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate you from him. You know that you don't deserve it, but he loves you anyway. And number four, you know that God's kingdom does not rise and fall on your performance. 
Listen, when you fail at something, the kingdom of God is not going to shatter and fall apart. It's not that you've got something that if you don't get it done and do it the right way, that the kingdom of God is going to collapse. It's not. You know, God sometimes leads us into failure. Sometimes God takes us through a a difficult passage of life. And he does that so he can show us that he loves us and that there's something better for us on the other side of that. You know, he does that. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. Right? So let's look back at Zephaniah three seventeen. Let's move back there for just a minute. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. And it says, look, it says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, who it was with, and how many people it involved. He rejoices over you. He sees the good in you. He looks at you and goes, yes, I love you. I don't care what you have done. I love you. And nothing is going to change that. And and then he goes on uh, and and he says, he will quiet you by his love. Now, if you've got children, you understand this. My wife, she calls this passage of scripture God's lullaby. Because when your child is upset and is screaming and is hurt, and it doesn't matter whether that child is eight months old or 28 years old. What do you do? You hold them, you pull them close to you and go, shh, it's okay. Shh, it's okay. I love you, sweetheart. I love you, big man. Shh. I'm going to take care of you. Shh, it's okay. Right? That's what God says he's going to do for you. When you're hurting, when things are falling apart, and you're like, I just can't handle anymore. Good. Quit trying to handle it. Let God jump in there and do that. And he says, listen, just let me wrap my arms around you. Shh. Shh. I'm going to love you. Shh. And then it says, he will exult. He will celebrate over you with loud singing. God sees you. And you know what he's doing? He looks at you and he sings over you at the top of his lungs. He's not just going, like most of us, you know, sing at church, you know, watermelon, watermelon, macaroni. You know, we're not, we're not doing, no. I mean, he is, I mean, God is singing over you at, at the top of his lungs. I, I was t- telling Lori a couple of weeks ago, I cannot wait to hear God sing. I mean, I mean, look, Revelation 19 talks about that, that, that when we see Jesus, he will wipe away every tear. Let me just tell you something just real honestly. Nobody touches my face except my wife and my daughter. It's not going like, hey, man, don't touch my face. It's not that. It's just that's a very intimate thing. 
And, and, and Jesus said, look, I love you so much. Look, I don't, I'm just going to wipe those tears away. And if you're a parent, you understand because you've had a small child and you've probably wiped tears away. But God is singing over us today. I can't wait to hear what his voice sounds like. I can't wait to hear the passion and the love in his voice that he has for me and for you. And listen, as your pastor, I want this for you so badly. I I, I want you to, to... get this and to walk in grace and understand that God loves you no matter what. When, when you know, I have, to have two boys and I have a, uh, a daughter. I started to say a little girl, but she's 22 now. <laughs> so, uh, but she's still a little girl to me, sort of. You get what I'm saying. But, you know, when Hannah came home from the hospital, I kind of called dibs on her because I understood that a father's relationship with his daughter is paramount. And I knew that as she got older, if, she, if, she, if I was not loving her unconditionally and generously, that she would look for another man to love her unconditionally and, and, and generously. And I'm like, I'm not into that. Because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, to love her and to, and to be a great dad to her. I, I, understand, I understand boys, and I love hanging out with my, with my boys, but, you know, but... Man, but, but Hannah, that was different. And so she came to the hospital, and so I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carry her to bed every night that I was home, and I would sing to her. And I, we'd be in the den, and I'd walk up the stairs and sing to her the whole way and just lay her down in her bed, and she would go to sleep. And we, I did that for years. And so one night I, I took her upstairs and put her to bed. And then I went outside with Lori, and we were doing some work out in the yard. And so we're outside, and Hannah's just screaming. I mean, just screaming like the end of the world, like her crib was on fire or something. Like, what in the world's going on? Because she never did that. I would lay her down in bed, she would not make a sound, and she would be asleep in like three minutes. And so I, I was like, what in the world? And Lori goes, I don't know. She said, just go check on her. I says, yeah, probably so. So anyway, so I went back in the house. And went upstairs, and Hannah is standing on the side of her crib. And she's going, sing, Daddy, sing. Because she was used to her daddy singing over her every night before she went to bed so that she could relax and go to sleep. And that night I forgot. Now, here's the thing. Your heavenly father will never, ever forget. He always sees the good in you, sings over you. And, and, and check this out. There were days that Hannah would do things when she was little. I'd go, oh. You know, Lori used to go to a Bible study in the mornings, and so I would keep Hannah. And so, you know how it is when you have little kids, and, you know, it's too quiet. I was upstairs working in my office, and I thought, this is not good. So I went downstairs, and Hannah was standing on the kitchen table. And she found the, the sugar bowl, and I don't know, she's probably 18 months, two years old, and she just, and she says, look, Daddy, snow. And I'm like, oh, uh, it's going to take forever to clean this up. And I said, look, Hannah, look, two things. Number one, no table dancing. Number two, no throwing sugar all over the place. That's a bad idea. So, so anyway, I got all that cleaned up. And then, you know, later, and then, you know, I don't know, three or four weeks later, same deal. It's a Thursday morning. It's real quiet. I go, oh, good grief. Here we go again. I go downstairs. She's in the pantry. She's found grits. 
And she's like, look, daddy, more snow. I'm like, okay, we're going skiing and we're going to get the snow thing out of you, whatever, right? But it doesn't matter what she's done. I still love her. I still sing of her. It doesn't matter what you have done. God still loves you. God still sings over you. He exults over you with loud singing. He sings over you at the top of his lungs because he loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Absolutely nothing. Let's look at the rest of this passage, uh, beginning in verse 18. And he's talking about, look, this is what's going on. I'm doing all this for you, and here's what I'm going to do. This is what we have to look forward to. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. You think you carry some tag on you, uh, some kind of scarlet letter that says that you're a Christ follower and people aren't making fun of you, or that you suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. There's a day coming when that comes to an end. He says, behold, there's that word, behold, look at it. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise. And so you're worried sometimes about what people think about you or what they're saying about you or what if I do this or what if, listen, there's a day coming and people are going, wow, I wish I had a relationship with Jesus like you do. He says, and there will be renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So in simplest terms, it's all about a heart relationship with God. So let's talk about this for just a minute. What if, what if, as a body of believers, as a group of Christ followers, what if we live this way? What if we say, okay, God, I believe you. You love me no matter what I do. I love, you love me. Now, what's the natural response to that? See, when when you realize that somebody loves you, you go, and it's genuine and authentic. What do you do? You respond back to them with love. What if, as a church, what if we lived this way? What if we communicated grace to people around us? What if we said, hey, you know what? God loves me unconditionally and so I'm going to love you unconditionally as well what if we did that you you know what would happen our marriages would get better relationships between parents and children would get better dating relationships would change our high schools middle schools that change our mission is to reach South Atlanta one relationship at a time this is where it starts this is where it starts you understand that God loves you you respond back to him with love and worship and then it begins to ripple out into our community, into our families, 
people start going, hey, there's something different about you. What, what is this different about you? It changes things. It changes everything. What if we were those kind of people? What if we believed what God said to us? What if we did that? So let's be honest here for just a minute. Let's have a little DTR between you and the Lord. All right? He went first. He said, I love you. He proved it. Romans 5.8 says that he demonstrated his love for us. crucifying his son on a cross he went first he says I love you what's your response to him let's define that relationship what if we did that God this is where I am 